podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. What's happening, everyone? Have a great guest today. I don't think he needs an introduction from most of you. Uh, Grandmaster Hikaru Nakamura, thank you so much for coming on Perpetual Chess. Uh, no problem, Ben. It's uh, good to be on your podcast. So you're back from the Grand Prix in Paris and cooling your heels in Italy and just got to Florida. You've got the Sinkfield Cup coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, so how are you going to spend your time in these next couple of weeks, Hikaru? Um, well, it should be interesting uh, because before the Sinkfield Cup, I'm actually uh, running a half marathon out on the West Coast near Seattle. Um, so I, I'm definitely going to be busy with that. Uh, that'll be uh, next uh, Saturday on July 22nd. So uh, just training a bit for that, getting ready. Um, and and then after that, I'll come back to Florida and I'll just be preparing for uh, for the Sinkfield Cup for the classical primarily. Okay. Have you been training already for the marathon? Half yeah, I've been training a, a little bit on and off. I mean, I, I think really my entrance, uh, well, there, there, there are a few ways that I've gotten into running. But I, I mean, originally, um, it's through my brother and my mother. Um, they both have run quite a bit. Um, my mom is in the middle of trying to complete half marathons in all 50 states in, in the U.S. Um, uh, she's also run a couple of marathons. And in fact, she'll be doing the San Francisco Marathon next weekend. Um, and then my brother, he's he's done a couple. I think uh, he did the Hard Rock half i think it was in philadelphia um and he's he's also training for the full marathon in chicago this this upcoming october so uh both of them have run um i i would say that i'm generally not much of a runner but the past couple of years um i've i've uh, participated in the wings for life world run uh here in here in florida they have it in multiple locations around the world and through that i've just kind of gotten into a little bit i mean i wouldn't say that i'm a a serious competitor i mean certainly from playing chess you you learn what you're really good at and what you kind of have to just take more as a hobby but but nevertheless I, i do enjoy it and i'm really looking forward to um to the half marathon next saturday and have you banged out the 13 miles in practice yet uh not yet no um but what I will say, I, I'm, I'm averaging around six to seven right now, trying not to overdo it. Um, but for example, in Wings for Life, um, bo- both of the past two years, I, I ran uh, just short of 10 miles before the catcher car caught me um, because it's a timed race. And uh, based on based on my performance in both of those races, having not trained at all, actually, um, I, I'm, I'm not too worried. But I'll, I'll probably build my way up there. I'll, I'll do one one long run probably next Next Wednesday or Thursday, probably try to get somewhere around 10, 10, 10 11 miles and, and then, uh, and then uh, looking forward to the actual race. Yeah, okay. So it sounds like you're in pretty good, pretty good shape for it. Um, good enough, I would say. But, I mean, it's, it's not um, – it, it'll, be, it'll be a new experience. Um, hopefully it goes well. I mean, it could go badly, but uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to it at any yeah. rate. And the endurance training can't hurt, and considering that you've got some long games coming up, as you mentioned. Yeah, um, certainly. I, I think it's it's really helpful uh, for chess as well. Um, I think I think it applies to many different sports. I'm very fortunate because having a house here in Florida, I can also train in other ways. I play tennis from time to time. I also do swimming quite a bit. Um, but in general, chess tournaments these days are, are getting more and more um, difficult. I think from the schedule as, as well as the fact that everyone's so strong now, and so it's very important that you're in tip top shape. Because I think. Uh, 
even even for an event like um, the the Grand Chess Tour in in Paris. Um, by the last day there, I, I was feeling really tired. I think actually everyone was, and it was reflected in the quality of the play. So um, it's it's chess is, uh, requires a lot of endurance these days, and so it's very important to be in good shape. So other than the physical training, um, in order to, to increase your longevity in chess, is there anything you can do chess-related to, to help you, you know, on the last day of a long tournament, like for those specific moments? Um, I mean, I think, I, I would say there really isn't anything specifically that you can do. I mean, I think maybe you can just try and stay calm. I think that's the most important thing. But again, even if you're calm, if you aren't playing well and things are going badly, um, that's that's not really going to make much of a difference. But I think perhaps that's the only thing slightly is finding a way to to maintain some kind of uh, inner calm or, or just just be be more calm in general. But of course, it's very hard. And and even with someone like Magnus, for example, um, the last day in Paris, uh, he was he was quite upset and losing control too. So I think it goes to show that it's uh, in, in the heat of the moment when you're competing, it's extremely hard. And I think uh, especially when it's rapid and blitz, that makes it even more difficult. Because in classical, you know, if you, if you make a dubious move or something. Uh, Let's say, you know, U.S.-type tournament, for example, because in Europe you only play one round a day. But in the U.S., if you have two rounds a day, let's say you've, you've just played a very long six-hour game, you've lost, and you have maybe half hour to go get some food, and then you're going to have to play the, the evening round. Um, but but even there, let's say you make a slightly dubious move. I mean, like, let's say move 10 in the opening. You still can use, like, 20, 30 minutes the next move or get up, go get some fresh air, and come back. And, and it's it's a lot easier to recover than it is um, when, when the games are quicker. Right. So you mentioned that Magnus got a little upset. Were you referring to the the little argument that he had with uh, Maurice Ashley? No, actually, I was not. I was referring to um, a- after his his loss against me, he went outside and threw a water bottle uh, uh, on on the ground, and 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 I think he said a certain Norwegian word. I think it's like "fain" or something. I, I know it means something quite quite bad, but but th- that's what I was referring to. I was not referring to the uh, the Maurice incident. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, we've all been there in any event. We. <laughs> We know that it's a vexing game, even for you, you chess monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's quite difficult. So you mentioned that you're training for St. Louis. Uh, obviously, I think a lot of listeners are eager to hear about the recent announcement of the latest competitor in the faster events, uh, <laughs> D- D- Gary Kasparov. Did that catch you off guard? Um, it did not. Actually, I, I had some. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I was sure that it would happen, but I, I had heard some some rumors about it during the Grand Chester event in Paris. So it didn't catch me completely off guard. But but again, I, I wasn't sure that it would happen because, of course, someone someone like Gary, um, you know, the, the personality is and and how big he's been for chess. You, you never really know because it's a it's quite a big endeavor for someone like him to come back. Because I mean. If he plays badly, it can affect his reputation as well. So it's not just simply a matter of coming out of retirement to play one tournament. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I think uh, it's going to be very interesting. Um, I, I think actually one of the reasons that Gary is participating, if I can say this, is I think that he's seen the quality of chess in in the Grand Chess Tour events, and he hasn't been impressed. <laughs> I think he, he kind of feels like he can do better than that. So I don't know if that's actually the case, but that's my, that's my – general feeling from from the outside and actually having having watched the um the event in leuven um and and not having not competed there i i you see some of the blunders and it's very hard to believe that people can make these blunders but then again in paris where i was playing everyone was making these blunders too and so i think perhaps in the case of gary he's he's seeing this from the outside and he just thinks i mean what's wrong with these people they're just playing they're playing like clowns but <laughs> um 
But okay. I think when Gary starts playing, he's going to see that it's uh, it's quite difficult, too. Right. Everybody's an armchair quarterback, but when you get out there, it's a lot harder. Um, all right. Well, there's a lot to unpack from that. So for starters, when you're watching an event like Leuven uh, and you're sitting at your computer, not there, do you? how do you watch it? Um, generally, I just, I just pop in. For the rapid, for example, I'll just pop in at the start, watch the opening, see what happens in the first five, ten minutes, and I'll, I'll, I'll go away and come back maybe a half hour later and see if, how the games are finishing up or if it's the start of the next round. Um, because it, it's, it's, it's much harder for me, as, as someone who's a competitor, just sit back and, and, and watch games from start to finish because really at the level I'm at, most of the uh, interest is going to be in the opening. So... So that's why I generally check in on the openings very briefly for every round and then go away and do other things. Um, sometimes I'll even just miss a few rounds and I'll just check it at the end after the, after the games are finished for the day. So, Hikaru, if you're watching the game and you see something that piques your interest from the opening, uh, what would be your next step? Do you just watch more closely or look something up or what? Um, it, it, it depends. Like right, right now I'm... Uh, on a bit of a hiatus, I'm, I have this long break right now, so um, so I'm not actually going to look at anything right away. But but what I'll generally do generally do is one of two things. If I'm on the hiatus like I am right now, I'll make some notes about it. And I'll, I'll I'll come back and check later once I'm starting to uh, once there's a tournament that's coming up again. Um, if if I have a short break though, where I'm still trying to be active and stay sharp, then I will look it up during the game and just see if it's been played or if it's it's something. That could be a really serious idea and then, and then go from there. So it's one of those two approaches generally. Okay. And do you have the engine going um, when you're watching these games? Um, ge- generally, I'll, I mean, the engine's always going on Chess 24, which is normally where I'm going to watch live broadcast. But um, I'm not going to boot up the, the serious, serious engines on my own computer to look at it because I, I think that kind of defeats the purpose okay. uh, when you're looking at a game. Um, in lot in, in real time it just doesn't doesn't seem very practical to me because when, when you do that i mean you see all these positions it's like oh wow look white's winning it's like plus one or something but then when you're just looking uh without it or, or you're not looking closely at the engine's evaluation i mean you think white might be better but it's 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 an interesting position and unless you're preparing for a very specific game or something th- those sorts of evaluations aren't going to prove to be very useful or very valuable and they're going to i think distort your your view of, of what's happening in the games too, because you're going to feel like, I mean, you're going to feel like the player who's say on, on the better side. I mean, they're, they're playing terribly when the advantage goes from plus one to like 0.5 or 0.25. You just think, Oh wow, they're, they're just so bad. And, and I think that's when you start viewing it through, through that lens, it's, it's not a good thing. So um, I try not to use the engine that much when I'm watching in real time. Okay. And getting back to Kasparov, your your boyhood hero and someone that you trained under a little bit. So are you going to do any sort of special training? And do you think it will feel any different to, to play him when you have the opportunity as compared to your other um, competitors? Well, you know, I think um, if I was just playing the Rapid and Blitz in St. Louis, it would be much easier to, to prepare for him. I think one one big advantage that he has about playing the Rapid and Blitz in St. Louis is that it is after the uh, classical event has finished. So um, I would like to prepare a little bit for him, but of course my focus has to be on, on the, the normal normal classical event, more so than on the Rapid and Blitz. Um, perhaps if there's a day or two in between the two events, I, I might look at something specifically for him. But I think it's going to be very hard because you, you don't really know what openings he's going to play, what what sort of the, the feel of everything's going to be like because... Um, in St. Louis, for example, he he uh, he played in this blitz event, event against Wesley Fabiano and I last year, 
and he he was playing these scotch scotch variations he was playing um he was playing the king's indian as black so i mean if 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 that's any indication of what he's going to be playing or trying to play, then I think um, I'll, I'll look a little bit at that. But I think it's very hard to actually believe that he's just going to play the same openings he played uh, in, in that Blitz event last year. So for me, I'm just hoping that I don't play him at the very start. I think that's the main thing. I'd, I'd like to play him a little bit later, end of the first day, maybe second or third day, just, just to get a feel for the openings that he's playing, just to see. Uh, what sort of form he's in? Okay, and what about the emotions? Um, what about uh, the the you know the legacy of Gary Kasparov? The fact that you um, have looked up to him for a long time. Do you think it'll feel any different? Uh, I don't think so. You know, the only thing that's going to be very interesting to see is uh, is is how everyone treats him because you know when you look at the event in St. Louis last year, um, there there was prize money on the line. It still had some importance, but. For the most part, I think Wesley Fabiano and I, we we were giving Gary too much respect in a sense. And uh, now that this event is part of the Grand Chess Tour, now that there is more prize money and overall prizes to be fought for as well, um, it's going to be interesting to see how he does because everyone's going to be out for blood and no one's just going to say give him a a draw here or there out of respect. And so I think that's going to be the most interesting thing to see is how he performs when everyone does not does not give him a certain uh, deference that normally they would. Yeah, I know the fans, myself included, can't wait to see. I mean, he's not lacking for competitive fire himself, so should should be uh, quite quite the spectacle. I'll, I'll say this: I don't think he's going to finish in last place. I'm, I, I would say I would say that it's probably like I don't know, like I would probably give three to one on that. Okay, and I'll finish in last. How many how many rounds is it? Um, um, so it it should be nine rounds of uh, rapid chess. You play everyone one time, and then eighteen rounds of blitz. So you play everyone two times in blitz, once with white, once with black. Okay. So twenty seven total games over. I believe it is five days. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Hikaru. I know that you're someone who likes to speculate, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But if you're going to give an over under for Kasparov's total out of the twenty seven points, where where are you setting the betting line? Um, I. Okay, so 27 games. So I would say um I would say probably plus 3 or plus 4. Oh wow. Means, okay. So he could win it, you think? No, plus 3 plus 4 is not going to win it. Not well. But I mean maybe, it's it's it within could, his he, range he goes, of outcomes, right? Yeah, I mean if he goes if he goes plus 4 in the rapid for example, that and does goes even in the blitz so he scores um what is plus 4? That would be um that's 9 points so he would score what? 6 and a half. Is that the right number? Out of the 27? Or no, out of, out, no, six and a half out of nine in the rapid, and he scores, um, it's 27, so he would score uh, thir- 13 and a half. Okay. If, if he puts up that performance, I could see it because there are more points uh, in the rapid portion than there are in the blitz portion. You get, I believe it's two points for a win in rapid, one for a draw, zero for a loss. And in blitz, it's one for a win, half for a draw, and zero for a loss. So if he were to say do really well in the rapid, he goes like plus four in the rapid, and then he just does even in the blitz he could win the event um, right and also if you're if that's your baseline expectation then there's some scenario where he smashes that and could win the event possibly possibly i mean i think i, th- I think i think i think plus three is about where i'd put the line okay wow that's um that's a lot of respect so do you think um you know every, he impressed everyone with his blitz play last year when he came back um and as you said, this was rumored a bit before it became public. Do you, how long do you think this has been on his mind, this return? Um, I would think it's it's probably been discussed for a while, maybe a month or two would be my guess. I, I 
don't actually know, but that would be my guess. Um, again, I think I think a large part of this though probably has to do with the fact that he's 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 want he wants to play certain events and and probably he's he's also curious because like I said said before, um, there have been a lot of very weird blunders um, in, both in Paris and Leuven. I think uh, since he's been out so long, he's he's probably really curious to see if if he can't do well considering all the blunders that have been made. Okay, and okay. if he if he can do well, I guess we can hope for more appearances in the future. Probably, but but again, I mean, I I, I think that he'll do well, but I, I think it's not going to. He's he, he's not, he's going to also make some really bad blunders, which I think is going to put everything into perspective as well. That makes sense. I mean, all, for example, we, we one of the games against me last year uh, in the Blitz, he 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 made a move and he let go of a piece, and then he then he moved it back to another square, and in a situation like that. Um, I, I was okay with that. Whereas in um, in this sort of event, that that's not going to happen. He's he's going to make those sort of blunders, and people aren't going to uh, let him get away with it, shall we say? Right. Okay. All right. Uh, and what about you? What's your uh, goal for the both the classical and the um, rapid yeah, and blitz yeah, events? Yeah, classical is going to be really strong, um, as expected. I mean, I th- I think everyone's playing there. Levon is playing. Magnus is playing. Um, Wesley, Fabiano. Um, uh who else i think well maxime obviously is playing too so it's pretty strong i think only only uh vladimir is missing um vladimir kramnik out of the top players as, as far as i know so it should be a really strong event um again in classical it's very hard to predict what's going to happen but i i did pretty well in norway i um, got off to a good start um unfortunately things didn't go my way at the end but still i think uh i think uh, I'm, I'm looking to do well i, I think expecting to win or saying i'm going to win is too much but i I think i have chances to win nice and you mentioned uh that you take the the preparation for the classical a little more seriously than for the the rapid and the blitz or at least it's uh a a higher priority on the to-do list so why why is that well first of all i think that in rapid um if you if you prepare generally speaking let's just say you play i don't know let's say it's something like the berlin something topical um if you make a slightly dubious move in a classical game, you're going to end up in a lot of trouble pretty much for sure because your, your opponent has, has time. They'll definitely find the best moves. Um, and so you're going you're gonna to get into trouble quite easily. Whereas in a rapid game, if your opponent doesn't, doesn't have the line down exactly, it's going to be a lot harder to figure out. And especially with only 25 minutes, um, if you burn up too much time, then, then you don't find the exact precise set of, set of moves um, to, to get, you know, the 0.5, 0.6 advantage, then you will have wasted 10 minutes and then, then you don't have a big advantage and you're already kind of on, on, your, on your heels a little bit. And so I think because of that, it, it's, it's much harder really to exploit the, uh, the slight inaccuracies in Rapid and, and Blitz than it is in Classical. Whereas in Classical, you know, if so, someone makes uh, a dubious move, you can think for 20 minutes and, and figure out the, the, the sequence, you know, four or five moves to get, get the big advantage where your opponent's in, in, under a lot of pressure. That makes sense. So in the in the rapid when you're playing and if you feel like maybe they made a mistake, but you're not sure how to capitalize, like how do you decide when to move? At what point do you just give up and move? Yeah, I think I mean, you, you start with 25 minutes. So I think um, probably assuming that ever, that it's just standard theory for the first like 15 moves or so i think it's reasonable somewhere around like move 17 18 or 19 to use 10 10 to 15 minutes to try and 
try and exploit a move that you think is uh, is wrong or you haven't looked at or, or, or so forth. Um, so somewhere around there, I think it's reasonable to use 10 to 15 minutes. Um, but if it's in the opening, it's a lot trickier because it, let's just say it's like move move eight or something. Um, if you use 10 minutes right there and then you don't find the right move, uh, you're not going to have time later. So, so, so I would say around like move moves but before move 10 i would say it's it's somewhere around like five six minutes um if, if it's just st- standard theory and you're at like move 15 or 16 or a little bit further than that uh it makes sense to use maybe 10 to 15 minutes around that range and and later isn't really applicable okay and um how does uh the faster time control impact your opening choices um, I think I think generally you try to play lines that are a little bit more sim- simple and straightforward. Um, I, I know for me, uh, generally I try to play stuff that it's just flowing where you can you know blitz out your moves really quickly, um, more so than say playing uh, uh, I don't know playing playing some some line where you have to be really precise and play all the right moves just to get some some minimal advantage. I, I tend to prefer something where it's easier to play. Uh, a lot of moves that are thematic than something where you might get a slight advantage, but you have to play all the right moves in, in a certain order, and it's just much more complicated. Okay. All right. Well, Hikaru, we'll definitely be coming back to chess, but I know that you're a guy that has a lot of interests, and you've been um, you've been pretty active in the markets. I know that, that it's probably your number one topic on Twitter. I know that you did a, an interesting interview on the podcast Odd Lots talking about it. So how much time are you spending on uh, trading these days? Uh, it depends. I mean, right now I've been taking a little bit of a break. Uh, generally, a- around earnings season is when I tend to be very active. Um, and there have been some earnings in the past couple of weeks uh, towards the end of, of Q2. But um, starting, well, starting really today, uh, today is Friday, um, it's really the start of Q3 of earnings season. A lot of banks are reporting. Um, next week is quite big. There are, there are a lot of big companies as well. So I would say um, around the start of uh, earnings season is when I'm most active. Um, so that, that'll be like next week, June June uh, 17th to 22nd, I believe, or 20, 21st, sorry. Um, so I'll be active then. Uh, Q2, for example, I was active a, a lot um, in, in April and May. Um, so so really around, around earnings season is when I'm most active. Of course, that is year-round as, as well. But really at the start of earnings season is when I'm most active. So there's a window of about two to three weeks. Um, and then after that, I, I pick and choose do do certain certain plays as well but it's it's usually right at the start okay so it's when companies are reporting their earnings we have to uh we i'm sure we have some finance interested people but we also i'm sure have some chess listeners who are don't even know what yeah, earnings I mean, season I mean, is so. the, the, the most basic way of putting it is that uh, in essence com- companies uh they, re- they report their earnings uh public companies at least that is um they report their earnings once once every quarter so four times a year uh, every every three months and uh, I mean, the reason the stock markets go up generally is you, you see growth in, in major companies or you don't see growth, which tends to lead to the stock market going up or down. So um, a, a lot of companies, the, the majority of their their moves percentage wise tend to happen based around their earnings because you tend to get a, a an insight into the future and where where companies are going. OK. And how did you uh, how did you end up with that particular niche in the market. Um, I've got some trading experience and there's like a zillion different method methodologies you can use. Uh, so how did you end up focusing on trading options around earnings? Yeah, um, I mean, originally it's, it started um, options. I, I started very basic uh, in that I started selling a selling calls against stock that I had, which is called uh, selling covered calls, essentially. And that means you, you own stock and you sell 
sell calls at a at a higher price in, in the future um, to to guarantee some upside earn earning as potential as well as if the stock falls a little bit. Of course, uh, you, you don't get a free lunch anywhere. A stock could go up a lot more. It could also fall a lot more. Um, so so it's never a guarantee. But really, that was my start was uh, just basically selling covered calls against my stock to to get some premium, make some extra money on the side while I held the stock for the long term. Um, and and so now now I'm I'm much more uh, involved in options. I, I tend to trade a, a lot of different strategies. Um, and I, I just kind of I found that I tend to learn from actual experience. So for me, like if I'm doing something directional, which is probably the closest thing to gambling, I would say it's just I, I make small bets. Just see see um, the. Uh, the financial metrics, I, I mean, there, there are things called the Greeks, uh, which tend to tell you what the implied moves are going to be. Um, I am trying not to get too specific here, but uh, basically there are certain mathematical formulas and certain numbers which tell you, say, stock A is going to should go up or the implied move is going to be, be, say, 3% after earnings. Um, and then, then I, I make small small bets basically to see you know, if it goes if it goes up more than three percent, or it goes up less, or it just goes goes way down if a company misses, and and I, so I started really small with that, and then then I've moved beyond that into more complex strategies, which I mean I'd rather not get into them because it's going to be a little bit too tricky, and it's going to take up too much time. But I, I started very basically, I started small, and I kept trying different things uh, over time. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that was a good explanation for the listeners. And when you're handicapping uh, earnings for a given company, like wh- what are your inputs? Um, so so you, you mean specific formulas, you mean? No, I mean like what governs your thesis like on a given okay. company? Yeah, so I mean I think there, there are a few things. First of all, I'm, I'm looking to see what the direction has been of the company lately. So if, if a stock, for example, has been up, let's just say – I'll, I'll give a good example. There's there's a stock like Nvidia. Uh, I think it's I think it's the biggest mover in the in the past six months or the past year on the Nasdaq. And if I look at a company like that and it's moved, it's I think it's moved over a hundred percent at least in the last twelve months. I think it might be closer to two hundred percent. I'll look at and see what the rise. And when a company has a really huge rise, I, I'm then going to go in and look and see what's what's fueling that rise. Like, is it is it actually based on fundamentals? Is there a reason, or is it based purely on on everyone expecting the earnings and, and the future projections to be better and better and better and better? And with Nvidia, for example, um, well, this, this applies to all stocks generally. But when I see a huge run up like that, generally, I, unless there's some 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 key component, something that's driving driving it up. Um, after a huge run, I'm almost always going to take the short side of that bet, just because I feel that the risk reward is much greater for for a miss than um, that, than the company beating earnings. Okay. And generally, with companies that are, have been up a, a lot, for example, they're they're much more likely to fall fall a lot on an earnings miss um, than they otherwise would, because they're up so much that the expectations are so high that it, it, from a risk reward standpoint, I find that there, there's there's a, there's a better reward than the risk. That's that's involved in, in some of those type of plays. Okay. So that's that's just one one example. So you're looking more at the the payout than like right. than like digging through the balance sheet of a specific company and sort of projecting based Correct. on. Okay. Correct. I mean, I, I think that I mean that's the thing with earnings is that a lot of the earnings. Um, you know, another example would be a company like Micron, which reported their earnings. I think it was two two weeks ago now, or three three weeks ago. Um, and they reported great numbers. All the numbers across the board were up on on revenues. They they beat on the top line and the bottom line. But the stock fell five percent the next day. So 
from an earnings standpoint, uh, it's much more about about the, seeing seeing what the what sort of move is going to be there, um, as well as looking at the actual uh, the actual um, numbers from from the formulas. Uh, again, I don't want to get too specific because I know most people here are not. Um, are not uh, are, are not uh, math people, but um, it's it's looking at the numbers as well, and that, and then beyond directional trading, just going long or short. Uh, there are other things like the implied volatility, for example. Like if, if a stock has um, a, an implied volatility, let's say of a three percent move, but or let's say a six percent move, but the historical volatility is say one percent. That's a five percent differential, and in cases like that, I'll tend to there's a certain other trade that I'll put on, or I'll at least look to put on based on um, based on those sorts of. Uh, that, those sorts of data points. Okay, and how how has it been going for you overall? Um, it's it's been pretty good. Uh, Q Q four last year went well. Q one was was really really great. Q two was was pretty rough. I mean, it, it wasn't bad, but um, I, I had a lot of unfortunate things happen, like the the day of earnings or the day after where things that shouldn't have happened happened. I mean, one example I would give would be uh, Chipotle. Um, they, they reported uh, pretty good earnings for quarter two, and the stock after hours on, on the earnings was up, I think, at some point, about 10%. And then at the end of their conference call, they, they said there was some some kind of security hack or breach, and, and so the stock only opened up, I think, maybe 4 3 4% the next day. So a lot of weird things happened to me in Q2, but still, overall, it's been quite good, and uh, uh, looking forward to Q3. Nice. Um, so you mentioned you had some what, what might have been some bad luck or you know things just didn't go your way in q2 does do you find that upsetting when stuff like that happens um when, when it's really random stuff i i do find it upsetting like with with like with chipotle for example um uh, as i said like this the stock was moving nice it was it was solidly up uh, i think it was up like eight nine ten percent at, at some point after hours um and and then when you have something totally random like just a, a rant they randomly mention a, a security hack at the end of the conference call um, yeah, I, I do find it kind of kind of annoying when it feels very random. Like if they could have waited, you know, till till the till the day after or, or a week after to mention right. something like that. I mean, it would, the whole whole story would be different. But but yeah, but still, I, I do get annoyed by it. But again, if if that's what it's going to take for for things to go wrong, then um, then, then th- it's not always going to be like that. So I think that's the main thing that that I've taken away from all of this is that um, generally you might you might have some crazy things happen in, in in the short term but if you stick to what you're doing and, and you, you stick to a strategy and you, you have you know your you, your uh your, your limits where you're buying you're selling and so forth uh generally I've, i found things will work out you just have to be persistent and keep keep going going with it okay and if um how would you compare let's say a trade that goes against you that you find frustrating versus a frustrating chest loss which one stings more um, I mean, obvi- without a doubt, it's going to be chess. Um, <laughs> okay. I, th- I think mainly because uh, with the markets, you, you, you never have total control. That's that's the, that's the number one thing. Um, uh, no matter no matter what you trade, I mean, there's you, you might think you might think a company. I don't know. Let's say a company like Rite Aid. Since I'm gonna, I'll, I'll mention random companies here and there um, throughout. A company like Rite Aid, for example, they they might be worth like two dollars and let's say thirty cents, something around there. But I might think, okay, this this stock, there's no way that's a value. Someone's going to buy them out. Something's going to happen, and it's worth four dollars a share. I might believe that, and I I might have done all the all the research. I might go through the balance sheet, all this stuff, and conclude that that I'm correct with with my uh, with my thesis, what I think is going to happen. But there's nothing to say that's actually going to happen at all. I mean, the stock could just keep moving down against me, and so. In a sense, I can do all the homework. I, I can make what, what I feel are, are the right decisions, but things can always go wrong. And so, well, it, it feels bad because I, I mean, 
if, if you if you're if you're trading, no matter what you're doing, you, you believe in you believe in what your analysis is. And when things move against you, it's very difficult. But still, there's nothing you can actually do about it. Whereas in chess, um, you definitely can do something right. about it. I mean, if I play a game against, I mean, e- even if I play a game against computer, let alone Carlson, if if I don't if I don't make a blunder, if I just play solid chess, I should not lose to a computer. Now, there's there's other psychological stuff, knowing that it's not going to blunder and everything. But I think that if I play against computer, not knowing that it's computer and disregarding all the psychological stuff. Um, if I make good moves, I should probably not lose. I won't win, but I should probably be able to draw. Now, of course, you can never really test that in theory because, of course, I'm going to know I'm playing against the computer at a certain point, and I'm going to, oh, man, this this stupid thing is never going to blunder. What's the point? So I'm going to be nervous the whole game, and it's like, uh, like, what, what am I doing? Like, you know, every move you feel like you're walking on an eggshell and you're second-guessing yourself. Um, but but that being said, the, the general general point, as I made, I think is true in that you generally control your own destiny in chess. And if you don't make any any blunders, uh, maybe dubious moves are just different, but if you don't make any, like, serious blunders, um, you, should, you should not lose. And so it's it's much worse for chess, I found. And I, I heard you mention in an interview that for the reasons you were just talking about, you don't like to play computers very much. Um, but it also sort of sounds like you do mess around and play them. So do do you like sit there and play them and try to draw them, or is it just too frustrating? Um, it's well, it's too frustrating. I mean, when, when I've played computers or over the past couple of years, at least, um, the the general thing I've been trying to see is if is if there are weaknesses in that. If I can play certain structures, or I can. Uh, get certain pawn breaks, cer- cer- certain little like glitches in the algorithms is more how I would put it than than trying to um, trying to beat it or use it as as serious preparation. Because I know that there was a time that I was playing this uh, hippo setup a lot, where I, with both colors, where you play e3 d3, put the knights on e2 d2, and then you go g3 bishop g2, b3 bishop b2, and normally a computer will will start out with something like it, it'll put pawns on say e5 d5 and maybe c5. Not always. Sometimes it'll put a knight on c6. But basically, at some point. It, it, it's kind of trying to trick the computer into playing d4 so you can play e4 and then f4 and play play basically a king's indian sort of structure and you can just attack on the king's side and hopefully the computer won't computer won't have the horizon to see it but that's more like trying to trick it than trying to actually like just just play your best and uh do your best against it well, so it's, it's not it all, real training person. it all counts okaro you don't have to out calculate it <laughs> any yeah. anytime you can beat a 3200 computer you'll get credit <laughs> Okay. Okay. Man, I, I don't know if you're trying to encourage me to play against computers. Like that. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, you, you probably don't need a pep talk from me. <laughs> so, so which computer do you play? Um, when, when I was playing, it was. I mean, I haven't played computers seriously for a couple of years now, but it was, it was primarily Ribka at that time. Um, I did. I did actually do an interesting um, sort of handicap match against the computer in um, San Francisco. I believe it was in the summer of 2014 where I played. Um, I don't remember the exact form, but I think it was I played two games against the computer where I could use a much weaker version. So I was playing against Stockfish, but I, I had a computer with a much weaker, well, just a much older computer, so it had a much weaker version of Stockfish. Um, I think we played two games, and then I think I think it was two games. It could have been more, but I think it was two games where I played against uh, a, against Stockfish with pawn odds. So the, the computer started without a pawn on the board, and... Um, actually, in, in that, I, I think I actually, I, I actually, I lost the final game. But basically, I, I drew one of the games where I had the help of the computer. Then the second one, I misplayed and I lost. Um, so, so I lost one and a half to half in the um, portion where I was playing with the much weaker version of Stockfish. And then, 
in the uh, in the two games, I drew the first one with the pawn odds, and then the second one because uh, it was a four game match, um, I overpressed in a, a, an equal position and lost the second game. So, um, all in all, I did did quite well with the pawn odds. But but again, I, I think it says a lot when you get pawn odds, and still, it's uh, very hard to beat a computer. Yeah, for sure. And do you uh, like? Is it upsetting if you lose to a computer? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, because really, at, at this point in time, I think everyone has come to accept that they're just much better than us. So it's more about trying to learn learn what you can from it. I mean, whether that's studying openings with it, whether that's playing and trying to pick up a little something um, about certain types of positions. Like, for example, there, there are a lot of positions where you might play against a computer with pawn odds. And uh, it's, it's just you're going to get an eval where the position is equal. And things like that I find quite interesting, where you're up a pawn, but it's just completely equal. Um, so those, those sorts of things actually I find quite interesting. Um, but, but in general, it's, it's, it's hard to get mad because computers are so much better than us. And, and we've known it for some time now. So it's not like something new or we're just trying to adjust to it. Unlike, unlike for example, saying Go, where... Uh, it, it was sort of, I mean, a bit of a, a flashback where, where you hear these Koreans and these Chinese guys, and it's like, I mean, the computer, it, there's, there's no way that these programs can beat them. It's just going gonna, gonna to be a bit of a joke. And then, and then of course, they, I think the Korean guy first and the, uh, very recently the Chinese uh, champion, they, they, both, uh, they both lost and, and lost quite badly as, as far as I know. So, um, so, yeah, I think in general it's just trying to learn and, and getting upset doesn't really serve a purpose. Okay, and what's your uh, your overall take on sort of the interaction between chess and computers, and where where it's going in the future? Um, it's it's very hard to know. I mean, I think uh, in a certain sense, chess chess is definitely uh, improved in that everyone is much better. We've learned a lot uh, from from in many ways, but primarily that um, you, most positions can be defended, and unless you're just completely lost, um, most positions there are going to be defensive resources. And I think that's one thing, the, the main thing that computers have taught us more so than anything else is that no matter how bad the position looks, in, unless you're literally just losing, uh, there, there, always are, there always is the possibility f- to have defensive resources. And I think, um, I, I think uh, that's, that's the main thing. And I, I think also, like, I remember in Gibraltar this year, Nigel Short won a game against Fabiano Caruana. He, he played a really nice game. Fabiano didn't. Didn't play the opening very well, got into trouble, and, and I mean, Nigel just played a great game. But one of the comments after the game from Nigel was that with these these top guys, basically, once you get an advantage, you basically have to just drive the stake into their heart because they just <laughs> keep keep finding moves, they keep defending. And I think I think that's definitely true. But see, like when Nigel says something like that, for Nigel, he's not used to that because when he when he was up at the top, chess was a much different game than it is now. Whereas uh, say for for me or for for anyone else, I mean, in order to beat someone really strong, that that's completely normal. I mean, you don't expect that. You expect if you get an advantage, they're going to keep defending. And you just have to play the absolute best moves to win. And, and so I think that that shows um, how, how much chess has changed uh, since since the days of uh, people like Nigel, Gary, and and those those other uh, other top guys. So what do you think the primary driver of your generation's chess players being better defenders is? It's just, I mean, it's literally just the engines telling us that pretty much any position, no matter how ugly it works or how, how ugly it looks, sorry, um, is defendable. It, it really is. I mean, there, 
there are I can't think of any specific examples offhand, but there there are a lot of examples where you, you get um you get a worse position. It might be like 0.5 or 0.6 even, which which is fairly serious. But if you keep defending, I mean, eventually you're going to go go into some end game or something, and, and you're going to be worse. But it's it's never losing. So I think that's the, the mantra essentially that I I tend to believe in. That is, in, unless you're just losing. Uh, the position, there, there's always going to be a way to defend, no matter what, always. So in terms of the numerical evaluation from a computer, what's what's the threshold, do you think, where you're probably losing versus where it's probably tenable? Um, I think any position that it's, that's around like 0.9 that's not in an end game, uh, like, like let's say 0.9 in a late middle game where you, you have some pieces on the board, um, I think is probably 0.9 or, or around plus one in, in middle games. Um I think is around the threshold. Uh, in end games, it's much different. I, I think if you're in a, if you're in some kind of end game where one side where there's a material advantage for one side, I think if, if it's say, if it's not p- plus two or better, let's say it's a let's say it's a bishop and knight ending where one side has uh, has an extra pawn, or let's say you have two extra pawns but they're doubled, for example, um, and the computer's giving something like point eight point nine. I think in most cases that means it's going to be a draw. Um, and I, if it's plus, if it's about 1.5 to two or better, that should be winning. I would say, of course, anything more means it's just for sure winning, but it's around that threshold. I would say for, for end games and, and late middle games, 0. 0.9, 0. 0.9 is where I would put it somewhere around there. That's interesting. Okay. And you're someone, you came up sort of at the dawn of the computer age and you're a player who's, um, done a little more training with computers, I think, than some others. So Back, you know, when you were making your ascent, what sort of stuff did you do with with computers besides the obvious like opening preparation? Um, I, I mean, when, when I was younger, I certainly played against computers quite a bit. I, I, I remember, in fact, uh, when when I think I think I was about like eight or nine at the time. Um, uh, I think I was playing the uh, I believe it was the U.S. Open in um, I think it was in Kona, Hawaii, if I remember correctly, and. Before one of the later rounds, I think it might have been like round seven or round eight. Um, I actually was looking at, at at a chess book, believe it or not, um, <laughs> <laughs> on the King's Indian. I, I forget who it was by. Maybe it was Gallagher or someone. But um, I, I was looking at a book on the King's Indian, and actually to try and um, try and understand, it, I was playing. Uh, I, I actually played a couple games against uh, against Fritz Four, and uh, to try and understand what was going on and use it to analyze the position. So. Um, I think that alone is a big difference because, I mean, just just playing playing an op- playing playing as a computer, playing at any opening really to try and try and learn some theory. Nobody does that anymore. It's just, I mean, you don't do that. But I think it says a lot because also the the valuations. Um, I don't. I, I think we didn't trust them so much. So the whole 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 way that we analyzed um, analyzed openings was much different back then. Um, and of course, when I was a bit younger than that, I mean, I wasn't really using computers at all. I was just uh, looking at tactics books and things of that sort. Okay. Um, are there? I know that you kind of, you, as you just mentioned, you're you're not as um, much a student of chess books as most of the other elite players. But were there any books that that really resonated with you? Uh, you mean from when I was younger? Sure. Or uh, I mean, from when I was younger. Um, I mean, I can't. I can't think of any that really resonate. I mean, I think the only one that I more or less read from cover to cover was My System by Nimzovich. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really think it was all that great, <laughs> if I may say so. Um, I, 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 I think there was another book I was reading. I think it was on the games of Tarash as well. And um, 
I mean, I just thought they were kind of rubbish. I mean, <laughs> that's funny. What do you think your your rating was at that time? I mean, this was around the time that I was like, I would say around nineteen hundred, probably nineteen hundred, two thousand. That's funny. And what about more recently? Any any books that uh, have caught your attention? Um, I think of the books that I've that I've looked at at least in recent years. The only one that uh, the only ones that really stand out to me are the uh, My Great Predecessors books by uh, Gary Kasparov. Um, I found it to be really interesting to read just because it's it's much easier when everything is laid out in a certain order as opposed to, say, you know, going in chess space and just looking through, you know, a, a bunch of games. You, you never know which ones are the most important ones. Um, so I've, I found those books to be quite interesting. Um, uh, what else? I mean, obviously, Dvoretsky's Endgame Manual, I mean, it's a fantastic book. I think anyone, anyone who's... Uh, probably about 2300 or stronger you almost have to have to read it even if you're not going to remember everything um you, you still have to read it it's uh it's it's absolutely a fantastic book and um i think one of the most most useful ones too because a lot of these end games i mean you think you're never going to get into some of these these end games but 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 a lot of them do happen over the course of your career you do end up in a lot of these very interesting work and pawn end games or these uh, minor piece end games as well Okay. Yeah, a lot of guests have spoken highly of that book. Um, all right, so let's get into your, your training a little bit. So you mentioned Kasparov. You're known to have worked with him um, some years ago. Uh, what was that experience like? Uh, it was very interesting. I think um, I think Kasparov, uh, he, he obviously has a lot of knowledge. Um, he's, he, he was the world champion for so long, and he, he was generally ahead of, ahead of the field in terms of uh, theory and, and, and playing new ideas at the time. So I, f- I found the, uh, the opening work to be quite interesting. Um, I felt that his, his preparation was very strong. The method in, uh, that he, he went about it and, and understanding how players played was very good. Um, that being said, I felt that perhaps some of the some of the tech, technological stuff had he had sort of uh, he was a little bit left behind from that standpoint. That a lot of the files that I looked at, some of the old ones especially, um, they were not they were not clean files. There, there were a lot of errors in them, and a lot of evaluations were completely wrong. Huh. Um, so so I I think I mean I, it was it was quite good, but I I found that the most important thing was was uh, hearing. Hearing about his experiences and and how he 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 uh, thought certain players played players more of his generation because obviously when I worked with him it was 2011 so a lot of the older guys were were still still around much more so than they are today people like Gelfon for example or I mean Svidler's still playing of course but he's I mean slightly weaker Ivanchuk's another one as well um, so so his experiences from playing a lot of the uh, a lot of the players who who were from his generation or just after um, he had a lot of insight there and I, I found that was probably the biggest takeaway more so than anything um he he obviously was very good at coming up with ideas still but but again um things like the berlin still still were stumping him even even in 2011 after it had been 10, 10 years pretty much right so when he gives you insight on a particular player uh without you know you don't have to dish dirt on specific people but but what would be the nature of the insight like he's weak in this type of position or this opening or what it's it's more yeah certain certain openings or certain structures within those openings they just don't feel comfortable within. I mean okay. it's more it's not that basic obviously that's I mean <laughs> it's never it's never quite that easy but but along those lines. Okay, and um, when and why did you end up uh, stopping working with him? Um, I mean I I felt that um the results weren't quite there towards the end. Um, I felt we weren't weren't really in sync. Um. 
And so it, it didn't didn't seem right. And also at the time I was working with someone else who who I still am working with. And I, I found a lot of the the general the general approach they they tended to have the same conclusion. But um, but the guy that I'm working with now um, he tended to reach the conclusion quicker. And I, th- I think probably the the best example of that um, would actually be from from Vicon Zay in 2011, the the year that I won the tournament, where. Um, I'm going to say it was round 11, maybe it was round 12. I was, I was playing a very critical game against Jan Nipomniachi. Um, and uh, the guy that I'm working with, Chris Littlejohn, everyone knows who he is at this point. Um, he, he basically felt that in, for that game, the best opening choice for me against Jan would be to play the uh, Karo Khan. Jan, Jan plays E4 almost all the time, or he did at least at the time. So uh, we felt that Karo Khan was probably the best best opening choice. But I, But I would say that... With Gary, for example, when I spoke to him, um, that was almost the last choice that he came to. I mean, first I think it was you know play a knight, or then it was like play e5, play maybe play French or, or play um, play play certain lines within, within the Spanish. I mean, there there were a lot of different things he said, and it was only kind of you know after after thinking it through and then then talking to me the next morning that he felt that the Karo Khan was the best opening choice, and. Um, now, now that game obviously was very early on when I was working with him. Um, obviously, Vikonze was was probably the biggest tournament that I've ever won. Um, but the, I, I feel like that's a microcosm of, of what started to happen more and more. Where uh, the guy the guy that I was working with, uh, Chris, his his ins, his 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 uh, decisions tended he tended to come to them quicker than Gary, and they tended to be the same more or less. Um, and, and and so I, I felt at a certain point that the value was lost, and also. Um, with Gary, it was very much about coming up with ideas that worked for entire tournaments too. So, for example, if you look at at Vikonze in that tournament, um, I, I I don't know how many games I won with this variation, but I think in at least three games I was playing this uh, uh, Nimzo variation with four knight f three. Um, and I, I know I beat Grishchuk in in the first round. Um, I think I drew Ponomarov and uh, I drew Vishian on as well. So. So um, the, the idea worked at the start, but it, it tended to have less and less effectiveness. And then I think I tried something very similar uh, against Kramnik in, in Dortmund uh, quite a few months later, and it didn't work at all. So um, I, I felt like also the ideas that were kind of running out a little bit, too. Like the ideas he was, he was coming up with, it felt like they were supposed to be structured more for being good for a whole tournament, whereas the way modern chess is, generally openings are only good for one game. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, so you, ma- everything you mentioned is opening prep. Did you do any sort of middle game or end game work with uh, Mr. Kasparov? Uh, we, we did some 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 end game studies as well. Um, certainly, M- middle games. I mean, uh, it's very hard to define. Um, I mean, what what even middle game training is? I mean, because because like, if you look at an opening, say you get some position on like move twenty or something, you you can kind of. I guess you can kind of study the piece play or something, but it's very hard. I, I feel like even if you're trying to teach chess, it's it's very difficult to kind of. Uh, to work on middle games, generally speaking. Yeah, I guess it would just be tactics, which you guys can both. In, in a sense, yeah, because I mean, generally, it's 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 almost impossible. I mean, just even off, off offhand to set up some some position in a middle game. I mean, because then you never know where the piece are the piece going to be exactly where they are, whose moves it, tempos, all all those different things. So it's it's very hard um, in general to study middle games. Okay. But you didn't feel like what you were doing in the end game uh, with Kasparov or the studies that you were working on; those alone weren't weren't worth uh, keeping him as um, an advisor. They were useful, but I, I, I felt that I, I could. I, I didn't feel that I was. A, I also felt as well. I felt a lot of pressure. I felt I was not obtaining the optimal results at the same time. Um, 
You know, I, I think that's one thing that has to be said is is when 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 you're working with people or, or they're trying to help you, um, th- there has to be a balance between um, criticism and and uh, optimism. Basically, being I mean, po- being positive and being negative. And and I found with with Gary as well that it was, I mean, the the positivity was there from time to time, but it was more or less something like, okay, you you played a great game, you won, good. Now you know, focus on the next game in a sense, as, as opposed to any. Uh, really constructive, uh, positive comments. Um, and then on the negative side, of course, it's like kind of, if you forget a line, it's, it's like, wow, I mean, it's kind of like, how did you forget a line? I mean, you're supposed to be a professional. You should never forget a line. Right. I mean, that's the sort of, that's the sort of attitude that, that I felt. And I mean, for some people that works, certainly, but I felt like at the same time, modern chess has become so much about memorizing endless lines that people do blunder. People do forget moves. Like that's it's inevitable. I mean, no matter who you are, you're not going to be able to remember every single variation all the way to the end. That doesn't mean you can't figure it out over the board. You can't put the put the uh, puzzle together where it's like, okay, this piece ends up here, this piece ends up here, and then later on you can kind of remember it. But um, but still, but but still, like when when you uh, when when you when you have to memorize so many different lines, it's. Uh, it's going to happen. I, I felt like Gary didn't didn't seem to completely understand that, and he felt like you should just be able to remember everything. And so I felt I felt there was a lot of pressure. And um, uh, in general, I think for for anyone when there when there's a lot of pressure, it's it's very hard to um, to play your best because if you're feeling pressure, it's like you know think, thinking like okay, uh, let's say it's you know move move twelve in a night or for example, let's say. You, you didn't ha- you didn't look at this line yesterday. You you looked at it like two weeks ago or something. And you think you know the right move, but you're not certain. And then when you go then, then when you start thinking through at the board, it's like wait, but okay, this this should be the move. But wait, if I do this wrong, then you know you start thinking what's going to happen after the game. You're going to hear hear something about it even if you do well. And so I just felt overall I was not. It, it felt like too much pressure. I didn't I didn't feel like the results were were, were optimal as well. Okay, well that's um understandable. Uh, so you mentioned that you've been working with Chris Littlejohn. Uh, I think it's a topic of uh, some interest to a lot of the listeners. Can you uh, l- walk us through when your relationship started, when you guys started to study together? Yeah, so it's 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 really a funny story. Um, so I think uh, this this goes way back. I think, I mean, I, I'm not even sure the year now at this point, but I, I think it was in 2002, 2003, somewhere around this time, um, one, one of my good friends at the time was uh, this this master from uh, – he's originally from Indiana, but he lives in Dallas. His name is Jason Doss. Um, and at that time, I was spending a lot of time on the internet playing playing chess. Um, uh, I think it was primarily ICC, and and he was an, he was an admin on ICC. So, uh, so I spoke to him quite a bit because I certainly uh, had some issues <laughs> back in those days. Um, and and so, so through talking to him and everything, uh, at some point um, – I ended up talking to Chris. I'm not really sure how it occurred, um, but but we we started talking. I think it was on ICC, and then it was on AOL Instant Messenger. Just for for those those people who still remember those days, um, and and so we we started talking. And originally, I think it was something random. Like he was trying to help me out with some kind of SAT prep or, or something with algebra. I can't remember specifically what it was, but it was, it was something along these lines. And then at some point, we ended up talking about chess and. Um, and then, uh, then he ended up actually helping me, uh, kind of more for fun than anything. I, I didn't pay him for for this or anything, but for this event in Karabakh in Armenia um, in 2005, I believe it was. And uh, it's worth noting also this tournament was never rated. Um, I did gain, I think, six six or seven points. So it would have been nice if that tournament hadn't been rated at some point, but but it wasn't. Um, but anyway, in that tournament, he he kind of helped me out, uh, did some prep. Um, 
And one one of the the big games in that tournament that I won was against Alexei Dreyev. Uh, all these games should be in Mega Database for people who are curious. Um, so I won a very big game against Alexei Dreyev in a Moscow in the in the in the uh, semi Slav, and um, he helped me with this game. And the prep was very good. And I, I uh, and and I had a good result. As I said, I picked up seven points. I think I went plus one or plus two against. Uh, Around a 2,700 2, average, maybe, or a little bit below. But there, there were some very good players in that event. Um, and so I, I had a great event there. And then fr- from there, um, we worked on and off a little bit in early 2006. Um, but but around mid-2006, I actually took a break from chess. I went to college. Uh, I went to Dixon College for a semester. Um, and then it was, it was in uh, December of 2006, was it 2006 or am I getting my dates confused? I could I could be getting my dates confused here, but I played played a tournament in Barcelona. In fact, I think it was not 2006; it was 2007. Now that I think about it, um, in December of 2007, in uh, I think it was called the Barcelona Casino Tournament. It was a tournament in Barcelona um, around Robin event. I think Dominguez played there. Um, Krasenkow. Um, there were there were one or one or two other players who were mid twenty six hundreds um, who played in that event as well, and so he helped me with that event. And I went, I think I went plus three or plus four. I, I won a very nice game against Dominguez in a Queen's Gambit accepted. Uh, I played probably one of my most famous games, uh, if not my most famous, against uh, Krasnikov of that event where I sacked a queen on f two. Um, so we worked together on that tournament, um, and we 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 kept working little by little. Um, Obviously, in those days, uh, I, I was not an elite player, so it wasn't that serious. I mean, he was helping me. I was paying him, but it wasn't a full-time job for him. He was, uh, I think he was actually writing uh, computer security papers for Red Hat, Microsoft, and other companies. Um, but we, we really started becoming serious in 2009 when I, when I played in the U.S. Championship uh, in St. Louis. And for that event... Um, Obviously, times have changed again. But for that event, he, he actually uh, he drove from Dallas up to St. Louis, and he 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 took his whole desktop and he brought it with him to uh, to St. Louis. Um, I mean, no- nowadays that just sounds completely insane. <laughs> Obviously, you have remote access; you can, you can do anything. But but he, I mean, literally brought his his, his supercomputer that he had bought um, bought a few weeks before, brought it up to St. Louis, set it up in the room, um, and that that tournament, which uh, which I, which I won, by the way. Um, uh, a, lo- a lot of things went right there, but it kind of the the reason that it that it seemed right um, more so than anything was that I, I remember the last round before the last round I think I was tied for first place with Robert Hess he was having a phenomenal tournament um, and and so we were tied before the last round and going into the last round I had white against uh, Josh Friedel who I, I think I had a decent score against him maybe it was plus one plus two overall it, it wasn't anything big and certainly I'd lost a few games to him as well so. Um, it was a very critical game, and um, I remember the night before before we were preparing, I was like trying to think of any kind of idea because he he plays e4, e5. I mean, very solid player. He, he knew his archangel lines. Um, I think he pl- he played maybe the marshal as well, or he played something else, one of the gambit type of lines. Um, he seemed to know his stuff quite well. So I remember we were discussing. I couldn't really come up with anything. I mean, I thought of some some crazy ideas too, like the Evans and things, but uh, nothing seemed to really work and. And so I think at some point, maybe it was around like midnight or something, I just decided to go to bed. The rounds rounds were early. I think they were at 1 p.m. So I just decided I'm going to go to bed. I, I told him, told Chris, like, basically, just take a look, try and find find something. And um, and actually what he came up with was something really good. He came up with this uh, this line in the um, it's not it's not the fried liver. What is it called? Um, 
uh, what is it? Uh, anyway, it was e4, e4, e5, knight f3, knight c6, bishop c4, knight f6, uh, knight g5, d5, e takes d5, knight a5, bishop d3. Um, it's, I, for some reason, I can't think of the name of this, this variation off the top of my head. But anyway, um, the line worked very well, and I, I won a very nice game in, in about 20 moves. Um, it was very smooth, and I... And so kind of it, I, I knew that for, from that point on that he was capable of generating ideas and coming up with things. And it's worth noting also that, you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the opening ideas that I've come up with, I, I don't tend to get much credit for them. A lot of people seem to uh, don't don't think that I'm a very good theoretician at any rate. But uh, this Bishop D3 idea, for example, after that game, it uh, became very mainstream. And I actually I think even Nigel actually played it in one of his blitz games against Gary some years later. Um, so, so that, that's, that's one of them, but also there are other things like the Dutch as well. Um, and some other, other things too, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, but yeah, having said that, that's kind of how, that's kind of the whole history of how it got started. And pretty much from then on, um, uh, not, not only the U S championship, but also he, he went, went to uh, San Sebastian with me for the next event that I played in, which was, I think about a month after the U S championship ended. And in that event, which was significantly stronger, I might add, it, I think that actually had an average around 2,700 because there were, uh, Dominguez played, uh, Ponomarov played at that time is quite high. Um, Van Whale was there. And of course, Karpov also played in that tournament. So that tournament, I think had an average around 2,700. It was, uh, it was a round robin event in that tournament. I, I won in um, I won that tournament after beating Ponomarov in a tiebreak. So, kind of the, from those from those two tournaments, I mean the U.S. Championship and San Sebastian. From then on, the rest I would say really is history. But that's that's kind of the uh, sort of the abridged uh, short version. Okay, well that's that's a fascinating story. I mean that's a lot of background that I think uh, that people will enjoy. So now does now is Chris just like a salaried employee of yours, or does? Yeah, um, he- yeah, Chris, I mean, at this point, he is my full-time second, um, so so we are working together all the time. Okay, and you don't feel like you need, like, I mean, obviously, at this point, he's like 2,400 or something, but you don't feel like there's a need for uh, another, you know, top 50 grandmaster? Um, I mean, it's, it's it's very hard to know what the right balance is. I mean, I... One of the things that I'm, I'm I mean, I, I tend to think is one of my strongest qualities uh, actually as a person is being being able to uh, to evaluate and see what the strengths are of people in general. Uh, I'm not referring to chess so much. I'm just saying in general. Um, and so like with Chris, for example, he's he's very good at generating ideas. He's fantastic at that. And I, I mean, I really feel that if, if Chris could actually remember, remember the preparation that he does, he, he'd probably be a grandmaster himself. Uh, having said that, Chris has the unfortunate issue that he can't really remember his prep. He might be able to remember it the same day, and then a week later he'll not remember any of it at all. Um, but but that being said, like uh, the, the, for me, it's it's not important. Like it's 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 not important that he can't remember. But the fact that he can come up with a preparation is paramount because I get to play the game, and and I have all the right tools to play to play at the level that I play at. And you um, would say you're better at remembering it. Or- I would gather. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's that's probably the number one thing for becoming a really strong grandmaster today. You have to have a really good memory because there's so much to to memorize. There's so much you have to remember, and no nobody remembers it perfectly. But you have to remember probably I would say about ninety ninety percent is where I would put it or around there. Wow, that's a lot. But but yeah. So getting back getting back to the the topic though. Um, you know, I, I think uh, like like Chris, he's, he's able to come up with the ideas. So even though he can't do it, the ideas that he comes up with, the way that he's able to understand the the, the computer evaluations, 
is very important. Those are components that I feel that a lot of top players do not possess. I mean, you, you might you might have a better feel for a position in general. Obviously, the stronger you are, the more experienced you are. Um, you're you're going to remember. You're you're going to have a better feel for a lot of these positions. But but again, in this day and age, it's, it tends to be more important that you can understand what the computer is saying than what you yourself think. And so, considering that Chris is able to understand evaluations quite well, and the fact that he's able to come up with ideas, I feel like it's it's more like fine tuning. Whereas I feel with the top player specifically, it's going to have to be very single minded in that you have to be able to come up with good ideas. And that's about the extent of it. And there are certain people who can do that. Certainly, I mean, I would have to say that um, uh, Rustam Kasimjana, for example, the idea that he came up with uh, for Fabiano in the, in the game that, that I played against him in the last round in Norway chess was, was a very good idea. Um, obviously, after one game, the idea is, I mean, it's not going to be playable again because everyone will just spend an hour using their computer looking at it and realizing, okay, they're very easy ways to equalize and, and it probably won't be seen ever again. Um, so, so there, there are benefits to having really strong players, but I think it's very idea based and, uh, I, I don't necessarily believe there's that anyone is looking at anything revolutionary. I feel like everyone is generally looking at more or less the same things. And it's more, I think, uh, I found at least, I feel that it's more luck as to who falls into what traps or who, who does this or who, who, who doesn't do, do other things. Okay. And do you think that that's healthy for chess, this sort of arms race? Um, no, I don't actually. I think, I mean, in a sense, it's for me, it feels a bit like it's it's not chess in a certain way because it feels as though uh, it's just a matter of who prepares better or who goes deeper. And, and that just kind of, as a as someone who grew up a little bit before before all of this, I mean, for, for me personally, I find it a little bit sad because I, I feel like that's not what chess should be. So what should we do? I mean, I don't think there's really an answer. I mean, I think the only thing I would say um, is that you you see that people like uh, Magnus, for example, I mean, he, he's a world champion, but what, what has he done to change the game? And one, one thing that he has done is the, the way that people play. So everyone these days, uh, one of the main things you try to do is get a very small advantage and then pressure your opponent until they, they make a blunder. And that's that's a direct result of the success that Magnus has had with that style. And so a lot of people are trying to do that. Um Whereas, like, if you look at, like, when Kasparov was playing, he was trying to win with white and black. He was playing the absolute sharpest variations in, in all openings. And because of that, people tried to emulate him and do the same thing. And so I think in, until, you see, um, until you see someone super phenomenal who just plays completely original chess and is able to make it work, uh, I think it's, chess is going to keep continuing down this, this path of the arms race, I would say. Okay, and you do, do you think that like uh, changing rules is necessary? Um, I mean, I think eventually we're probably going to get to a point where nine sixty will take over, but I, I don't I don't think we're there yet. But I do think that probably sometime within the next ten to fifteen years, we're going to get to that point where preparation is going to get too deep, so that you know there are going to be too many draws, um, and and you're going to have to see some big changes. Okay, and uh, getting back to Magnus, um, he's um, his ratings, are, you know, off his highs by a fair amount. Um, as a as a player on his level, um, how do you uh, assess that? Like, does it matter or not? Um, I mean, I I think it's just um, I think it's just the gap is closing more than anything. I, I I don't think he's I don't think he's actually a weaker player than he was when he was at say twenty eight eighty. I think it's just that. Everyone has adapted and everyone has become stronger. Um, 
you know, I, I think pre- as, as I was mentioning before, I think preparation, uh, it's it's the way preparation has become is that it's, it's evolved so much now, so much so that now um, pretty much anyone, even someone who's probably a little bit lower, they're generally going to be able to get to like move 15 without being worse. And I feel like with Magnus, uh, at least a few years ago, he was he was able to trick people a bit more before that threshold where you were you were hitting like the late opening or, or already the middle game. Um, and I feel like he's not able to do that as much anymore. I think that's because the preparation or the the just the number of games and the 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 amount that we've built on the previous knowledge has become so so great that it's it's much much harder now. And I, I think I, that applies to everyone. It's, it's very hard now. It's extremely hard to uh, prove anything. I think that's why Magnus has, has seen the dip. It's not that he's playing worse. He's, he's still a very strong player. It's just the level of preparation uh, combined with the talent of the players has, has caught up. So do, you th- so do you think it would be hard for anyone to achieve the kind of separation that he had uh, a few years ago? Yeah, I think actually it's probably, I mean, I think it's borderline impossible. I don't think you're going to see a separation of uh, 50 to 60 points I mean, I think at his peak, actually, maybe it was more than that. But I don't, I don't think you're going to see you're going to see that kind of gap ever again. It's it's just very hard for me to believe. Wow, that's wow, that's, that's really, interesting. really interesting. I mean, I think he could open a gap. Like, I think it's very entirely possible he could open a, up a gap. Like, I don't know, twenty twenty eight sixty to twenty eight thirty on like Aronian or or uh, or Wesley or, or someone else. I think it's entirely possible that could happen. But I don't think you're going to see you know a twenty eight ninety rating and a twenty eight thirty rating. I just don't think that's realistic. Is there a reason you didn't put yourself in that twenty eight thirty hypothetical? Oh, I didn't put myself in there just because right now I'm not number number two or number three. That's the only reason. Okay. Um, so, in terms of uh, your well, all right, let's uh, finish this sort of thread. In terms of the World Championship um, qualifications, if you were to pick the next World Champion and exclude uh, yourself from the uh, from the conversation and so, so the person that succeeds Magnus, who do you think would be most likely? You know, I, it's it's very hard to say because I, I would have to say on paper, I think in terms of potential, it would have to be Aronian. Um, he, he's the only player that I've seen who, who seems to possess all the right qualities um, in that he's very creative. He, he, does, he doesn't always get the right results against Magnus, but he does generally tend to get very good positions. Um, and... So I would have to say it would be Aroni, but the problem with Aroni is that somehow when there's real pressure, um, specifically candidates-type tournaments, or even more recently in Geneva, for example, um, somehow things just don't seem to quite work. Maybe it's just it's just too much pressure, or what what it is. But somehow when the when the moment when when he reaches that critical moment, things don't seem to go his way. And and so while I'd like to say Aroni, I mean I probably would have to say. Um, I would probably actually say outside of myself, I would probably say Fabiano. He's the only other person that I would that I would say because uh, he has also done quite well against Magnus at times. He's won some really nice games, um, and as, as we saw in the past, he he had that great run in St. Louis, and he was up up somewhere around twenty eight fifty, which uh, I, no one else has even come close to that. So I, I would have to say Fabiano if I did pick someone besides myself. Okay, and but you do think you you're in the conversation for sure. Yeah, I think I think certainly uh, probably in the last year or so, uh, I've, I've, I think I've actually improved a lot despite my rating uh, seemingly not not improving. I feel like I've become a, a much better player overall. Interesting. And do you worry that that your outside interests that like your your trading and the fact that you're like following current events and stuff like that? I know some chess players just have tunnel vision. Do you think do you worry that that can hold you back? 
Um, no, I don't actually. I mean, I, I think that's that's another way chess has changed too from the past. Is that if you go back, um, well, maybe not entirely because there were some some really good players who had other jobs. Like I think Bot Vinick, for example, um, comes to mind. Um, but but in general, I think yeah, in the past you had to spend all your time studying chess because you didn't have computers; they just simply didn't exist. So you had to study more by hand. And when you're studying by hand. I mean, looking at an opening takes a lot of time, looking at all the variations all, and, and so forth. I mean, you spend probably months just studying an opening, whereas now, I mean, probably in one day you can play, you can at least learn a variation some opening, I, even if you've never seen it before. So I, I feel like it's it's more a matter of optimizing the amount of time that I have in, in a day as opposed to, say, uh, you know, spending all my time on chess. I feel like if you optimize the amount of time that you study chess as, uh, and combine it with all the other other interests, it's it's not. I, I wouldn't say that it's holding me back. So I, I I don't feel that way. Okay, and it seems like uh, at the top level, all of the talk about like preparation and improving. I mean, so much of it is opening related. Is there anything that you or your peers like you think put time in calculation wise, or are you guys just like? The visualization's already there. Um, I mean, I think it's already there. I think it's perhaps uh, the only thing I would say is I feel like certain players perhaps uh, they spend more time. They try to be uh, more precise and pr- than they are practical. Perhaps I mean, I, I think some of the players like Fabiano, for example, uh, based on the way that he grew up studying chess, he tries to always find the absolute best move. Um, and and sometimes that, that that obviously makes sense. He's he's certainly a great player, but other times it gets him into a lot of trouble because he gets very low on time, and then he doesn't then then if he doesn't have an overwhelming advantage, uh, the time pressure t- seems to get him into trouble quite often. And the same could actually be said for Grishchuk as well. Um, okay, uh, and you uh, obviously you you know you were a prodigy growing up. You've always been a, near the top for your age, but you did need to make a jump from when you were about like whatever 90th in the world to now you've been in the top 10 for basically five straight years and you were known as a you know tactical wizard as a kid and now you obviously can do everything so is was there something that you did to solidify the other portions of your game um yeah you know i think uh, it's it's funny you should say that. i think actually there's there's one thing that stands out um you know, I obviously was a very strong tactical player from the time I was quite young. Uh, I've, I've always had a very good tactical vision. Um, but yeah, I think uh, one thing that stood out with me was uh, it's, it's 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 always strange, but certain little comments uh, that some some somehow they seem to get stuck in my head. And one of them uh, stands out for me, which was uh, I don't know if it had an actual uh, you know it really affected me anyway. But one one that stands out was uh, I believe it was the uh, U.S. Open in um, I want to say it was in. Fort Lauderdale, maybe it was, it was. It was somewhere in Florida. And I want to say 2005 or 2006. I'm not. I'm not sure the exact year. Um, I think it was 2005. But but uh, at that tournament, uh, Alexander Wojtkiewicz was there. And um, any anyone who's from my generation before, at least playing chess in America, certainly certainly remembers him. Uh, oh yeah, yes, he's <laughs> quite a personality. Um, and, and so. Uh, I remember. I think it was at the end of the term. He said he said something to me like, um, you, "You need to, you need to play more positional chess." I, I don't think it was quite that direct, but it was something along those lines. Um, and that really stuck with me. And and I think shortly thereafter, I started trying to play a little bit more positionally. And obviously, it's it's not really that simple to just become a strong positional player. It doesn't happen overnight. But I I feel like from that that comment sort of helped me. Um, try and try and play a little bit more universally so you just made an adjustment in your actual tournament games or was there any sort of training um 
that I you. I was just trying to make make an actual adjustment, trying to play slightly different openings. Okay, and you've you've mentioned uh, in the context of your trading that you learn from experience. It seems that more so than than most other chess players, that's been your your development with actual chess as well. Do you do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I've, I found actually that's the best way I've learned, no matter what it is. Well, I mean, not not. I mean, it depends what we're talking about, but but certainly in regards to chess and trading as well. Yeah, I found that experience. Um, that's that's exactly how that's how I learned best. Um, you know, I, I I think obviously reading chess books like growing up it certainly helps there are definitely are benefits but for me i've always found that i learn best from being in the actual situation and and actually like playing interesting um okay hikaru well i've i've got you know a handful of uh other topics but they're a little more um lifestyle related i think uh mm-hmm. you know uh, we're, we're privileged to have you as a guest on this podcast and you know you've got a pretty unique life so number one question do you have an agent or do you do everything yourself um, as of this moment, I do not have an agent. Um, I do. I don't do everything on my own. I have a couple of friends who help me here and there. But um, but I, I found uh, in general, it's it's very difficult because even even where I am, the level I'm at, I mean, um, if you have an agent, it's it's kind of a matter of what can they what can they do for you. And if you look at it within the context of the chess world, there's not a whole lot in that. Um, I mean. Your tournaments, as a top ten player, you're going to get invited to certain tournaments. That's how it is, um, and it, there isn't really much to negotiate. Sure, you can maybe negotiate the uh, appearance fee or something, but it's not going to be a substan- It's not going to be a substantial difference between what you'll get if you're negotiating it yourself. Um, and so I've, I've found, um, I found from that standpoint, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, if there are people who wanted to help me on the outside, it's certainly possible. But uh, from from the dealings I've had, most people have wanted a cut of certain things within the chess world, and I've, I've I've found that I mean for the most part I can handle them myself, or I can I can get some help from a couple of friends, or or even my stepfather, and and so w- within the chess world I don't feel there's necessarily value, and um, outside I haven't really explored that much. Obviously these days uh, um, I'm I'm doing a bit more. Obviously I was on that Odds Lot podcast. I'm I'm probably going to be uh, be at a Forbes conference later this year that hasn't been confirmed yet but i think it's it's fairly likely um so there is a possibility going forward um especially as i get more um, gain more prominence and become more interested in other things that that i will have an agent but as of right now i'm I'm pretty happy with the way things are and i I tend to be able to to deal with everything myself i tend to be pretty good at compartmentalizing and and utilizing the time that i have nice i'm looking forward to your show on cnbc (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well okay i mean i'm not not a huge fan of some of those some of those yeah, i hear you i'm with you I, bloomberg's a little more my speed but even that's uh not ideal okay um so when you started to get invitations to these tournaments you know when you crack the top 100 and, and start to to be invited to these invitationals how do you figure out what appearance fee to ask for um i mean i think at the start it was it was much more difficult certainly because there there's there's not an established um kind of fee to begin with there's nothing is established you don't really know what to take and and when to ask for more so um i mean i i, I felt like again coming back to this whole experience thing it's kind of you, you throw out some numbers you, you see what people accept what they don't accept and you go from there and in the chess world i found and this comes back again sort of to the agent issue is that you, you can sometimes ask for more money. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, certainly. But generally, most of the chess tournaments tend to have fixed budgets. Um, 
So if you look at the tournaments that I plan, for example, the Grand Chess Tour, everything everything is in the prize money. There's nothing to be negotiated. Um, I mean, Magnus negotiates certain things, but that's sort of out. That's those are other other issues not related specifically to the tournament itself. Um, and so there's nothing that really needs to be negotiated for the Grand Chess Tour. The Grand Prix also the exact same way. All the money is in the prize prize fund. Um, and so so beyond that, there are certain tournaments like Gibraltar, for example. Um, or I guess Zurich is another tournament that I played in where you, you can you can negotiate certain things, but that's that's two tournaments. And if you look at this, if you look at overall, that's two tournaments out of let's just say maybe seven or eight. I, I think there, there's also the U.S. Championship that I play every year. Again, that's all in prize money, nothing to be negotiated there. So um, I, I, I found at least since since I've become in the top ten, there there isn't a whole lot of negotiating negotiating that needs to be done. Um, for the most part, you're not you're not going to get. Uh, short change and I, I have certain limits that I've established and uh, and very rarely do I find nece- necessary to negotiate so it doesn't seem to be a big big deal okay and when you sorry when you go to a tournament do you get picked up at the airport <laughs> uh, yeah pretty much well it, it depends on the event I mean I, I would have to say that um, uh, all the events that st. Louis is involved with uh, their their organization skills are, are second to, second to none by far Um uh, the U.S. Championship, for example, they pick everyone up. Same applies to Singfield Cup, and um, and then for the Grand Chess Tour as well. Um, they 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 always organize uh, uh, car services or limos. It's um, it's it's very good. So for the most part, that's true. Um, for for the Grand Prix as well, uh, they they do pick everyone up at the airport. So um, I think with the exception of tournaments that aren't really close by, say a tournament like Vikanze, for example, um, which is two hours away from the Amsterdam airport. Uh, sometimes for that, you have to organize your own uh, transportation. But for the most part, um, the organizers do provide transportation. I guess London is an example where uh, you, usually they don't because Heathrow is, is so far away from uh, from West Kensington. So, um, so, so yeah, so some events, they, they don't. But for most, they, they do pick us up at the airport. So it's, it's quite nice. Nice. Yeah, sounds good to me. Um, so, uh, how'd you decide to live in, uh, you, you split your time bef- between Florida and Italy at the moment? Yes. Okay. Uh, how'd you, um, decide to live in those places? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's my, my life has taken me all over the world. I mean, it's, uh, it's been quite interesting. I, I, uh, born, I was born in Japan. Um, obviously my, my parents got separated when I was quite young. So I spent a couple of years in California and then I, then I was, then I grew up in New York. Um, but I, I feel like ever ever since um, ever since I went to um, Vancouver after after I dropped out of college, um, I've been really interested in all sorts of different places, and so that's led to me living in, in a lot of different places. I mean, I was in Vancouver, then I was in Seattle, um, I was in St. Louis for a couple of years, um, and now, now I'm in Florida. Um, I think with Florida, it's there 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 are several reasons. Um, obviously, there are tax benefits uh, that 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 plays a role when you start to make more money i I mean i think uh, it's it's very easy when you're younger to uh to to not understand the ramifications of these sorts of things um uh, and when you become a bit older you start making more money they they actually become more important um so that's that's one big reason but um as as well um another thing is that down here uh property is is a lot cheaper the lifestyle tends to be a, a lot slower um, and I think growing up in New York, having spent spent a lot of time, um, I spent time also in San Francisco as well as Vancouver. Those are three of the most expensive uh, markets in, in the world, frankly. Um, and so when you, when you when you spend a lot of time in these places and you see what the rents are, what the what the costs are for buying buying houses or condominiums, um, 
it's it's really a, a shock when when you see what you can get for for those same sorts of uh, amounts of money in certain other places and and down here in Florida um, as, as I mentioned before it's it's you can get a lot your money goes a lot further so uh, it's it's quite nice down here but also um, besides that the 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 mayor of of the city I live in Sunrise here in, here in Florida is very involved with uh, some chess programs as well. There's AF4C, which is doing um, countywide programs for, I believe it's kindergarten and first grade. And then there are other programs as well for, I believe, third and fourth grade too. So there, there's there's a lot of stuff going on with chess down here as well. And that, that also has played a big role. Um, and then on top of that, um, the, the new owners of the uh, hockey franchise down here, the Florida Panthers, um, they also have an interest in chess as well. So Across the board, there's a lot of interest in chess. So it's not simply for the, the first couple of reasons I mentioned, but also the fact there there's a lot of appreciation and interest in chess, too, and that, that has played a big role as far as why I'm in Florida. Um, and as, as far as Italy, um, most people know uh, I, I have a fiancé who is Italian, so I spend a fair amount of time there as well. Um, I haven't decided where, I'm, where, where, if anywhere, I'll live full-time because playing playing chess uh, requires you to travel so much that uh, it's not not – not something that I'm thinking about at this moment, but but I do like Italy as well. Um, I mean, it's it's quite a bit different here than the U.S., but especially being in, in southern Italy, I think people tend to um, they tend to enjoy what they have much more than say the monetary benefits that that come from life. And I've I've found that to be very refreshing at times too. Yeah, it sounds like you're pretty grounded. I mean, you're not uh, in terms of making your choices of where you live based on fine like. Uh, um expenses and stuff like that i uh, mean so- florida certainly to some degree there are there are big advantages than, than new york um for sure but but i really do like it down here and also i i mean there there's there's access to everything down here and and above all else just having access to the airport is going to be the number one priority in my life at least for for a few more years so um so yeah i, I just like everything here and as i said italy as well i mean when when you when you go into, I mean, it's not just Italy, but when you go to uh, some of these these countries like Spain, Spain as well, southern Spain and and Italy, southern Italy as well. Um, I mean, a lot of people they they don't necessarily have the the great jobs. Their technology is certainly lagging behind compared to um, compared to other parts of Europe or uh, the, the U.S. and Canada. But but still. Um, you, when you see the the work they put into gardening or having fresh food and and these sorts of things, the sorts of things, there there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of benefits to that too. And I think uh, especially when you see see how how slow it's been and how long it's taken for things like organic food um, uh, to become so popular here, the fact that there still are issues, you know, with with companies with GMOs and using pesticides, all these other things, and you see people. Uh, gardening and farming in some of these places like Italy or Spain and even Greece for that matter, um, it's it's quite amazing and it's it's quite refreshing to see the way that they they still have they still can live this lifestyle and they haven't been put up put out of business by the big box retailers. Okay, you said a few more years of uh, ex- intense travel for for your playing. What do you think might change in a few years? Um, I mean, I think. Uh, I think it's going to depend a lot on how long I maintain a, an interest in chess. I mean, for the moment, I'm completely focused on it. I'm very serious about it. But I do have a lot of other interests. And, um, I mean, at some point in the future, I would like to do some other things. Um, I mean, I've, I've always wanted to do something with a, with a foundation or um, something with a, with a nonprofit, try and do some, some good for the world, try and uh, help out people who are a little bit less fortunate. So um, I don't know if that's, say, five years from now, ten years from now. Um, but, but I will say I do think that... 
it's very unlikely that I will play chess past the age of 40. I, I don't I don't really foresee myself playing playing till I'm like 45 or, or 50, 50 the way that you see like Vichy, for example. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, he's an amazing player, but I just don't feel that that's uh, what I'm going to do when I'm when I'm past the age of 40. Wow, I think there's going to be some some disappointed fans. Uh, do you <laughs> think do you think you'll play like once or twice a year, or will it would it just be too hard to to be pleased with your games? I, I think it all depends on what your expectations are. You know, I, th- I think I think one thing that I that I really really admire about Vichy, for example, is the way that he keeps going on. Sure, he's not the world champion. Sure, he's probably never going to get back to that level, but he still enjoys the game and he still can p- be very competitive. So, uh, I really find that refreshing for someone who was a world champion. Whereas with some of the others, um, I mean, two two people come to mind. I think uh, Judith Polgar is one example where she retired right before she lost the number one spot to Hu Yifan. Um, and of course, Gary is another example of someone who like could not, he just couldn't be a professional chess player if he wasn't the absolute best. And, and so it depends on what your expectations are. So when, when I look at those, those two different sorts of, uh, champions, you know, I, I, I feel that I could still play chess. Certainly I'm not, you know, even if somehow I, I, I were to say, let's say I win the, uh, Let's say I win the World Cup, I win the win the candidates, and I beat Magnus in a match. Um, even if I were to become world champion, I still don't think that I would be incapable of uh, of playing, even if I wasn't the absolute best. Uh, I, I feel like um, you know there's there's more to it than just having to be the absolute best. And and on top of that, you're never going to be the absolute best forever. That's that's just how life works. It you know unfortunately uh, you know you're you're never going to always be at the top. I mean, although some people are trying to prove that isn't true in some other sports at the moment yeah um, but but yeah I, I i certainly could still play some um i i think as for me it's more about being competitive than anything if i'm competitive i can still win some games um i don't think that i would completely stop now on the other hand if i were to say fall to say 2700 i just can't compete with the top players at all then i then i think i would just not not bother okay but there's again, there's a difference between having to be the absolute best and just trying to be competitive. Anything that you want to talk about before I uh, let you get back to your busy life? Uh not not right off. I mean, I think that was uh, that was uh, quite good. I hope that the fans enjoy enjoy the podcast and they learned a lot out of this because I know some of the things I said, uh, especially about Chris, I don't believe they are. Uh, they certainly aren't public knowledge, as far as I know. Excellent. Well, yeah, I definitely enjoyed it, and I'm pretty sure the fans will be happy with it. Normally, I ask my guests how to reach you, but I know you're a pretty pretty high <laughs> pretty high profile guy. If people want to reach me, probably I mean probably they should just uh, drop me a line on on one of the social media forums. Pro- probably uh, probably Twitter would be the simplest. Excellent. Well, oh, uh, I did want to ask about any chance uh, of returning to poker at all. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's possible I might play some again. I, I think uh, that that's one thing that we didn't really touch upon is. Um, when you compare, say, whether what markets in general, this doesn't just apply to options, but when, when you're when you're trading in general, um, there there are certainly similarities to chess, but I, I have found the similarity similarities to be much closer to poker in general because again, you can't control everything. Um, I mean, if you make the right move, you get eight says you make the right move. Someone calls you with eights and they flop an eight, and so you're out of the World Series or something. Just I mean, a that, random that random example. <laughs> Sorry, actually, I didn't have the ace side king. Sorry, I got oh, okay. I had kings and I got busted by eight. Right. <laughs> but, I, I, yeah. So, so like, just just a random example. <laughs> of that. Um, 
but but yeah, I, I think uh, one reason that I might actually start playing some poker again at some point is I, I felt that when I was playing poker in the past, I very much had the chess mentality of, okay, I, I make the right move every time. That's that. You know, you fold every hand in, until you have a certain amount of big blinds or whatever, unless you pick up, you know, like ace-king, three-ace-jack or, or pseudo-connectors or cer- certain random hands. Um, whereas I feel like now, because... I'm more. I view it more through the risk reward and and trying to be more practical and realizing you can't control everything uh, in the markets. I feel like that might translate towards how I view poker. And so at some point I might play some poker again. I doubt I'll ever play it seriously. Um, I mean, there there was a period when I was was grinding at you know at some some of the some of the uh, cash games for for periods of time, but I, I really didn't enjoy it that much. And I, I just. I feel like there's more to life than that, so um, so I don't think I'll I'll like try and grind or play seriously, but I, I think it's possible that I might go and play play some events at the World Series, for example, or just play some local events at some of the casinos, you know, like Seminole Casino here in Florida. Um, so it's possible. I, I wouldn't say it's something serious, but I, I think it's quite likely that I'll play again, just because I think the the way that I would think about it. I mean, the analysis is all going to be the same, but the way that I tend to think about it, the way that I tend to control my emotions, I think would be quite a bit different, just because of uh, just because of what I've done with the market. So so, so it would be an interesting experiment. I think at some point I will will play a few tournaments. Nice. Well, we'll keep an eye out. And uh, one last thing about poker. You mentioned to me offline, and I thought this was interesting, that you have a theory about why the, the chess players who have done the best in poker are not the strongest chess players. Could, could you uh, expound on that a bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there... I mean, really, poker, I feel, come, it comes down to two things. It comes down to analyzing the the hands and, and making the right decisions but a lot of it also is you know uh risk reward management and then sorry one other thing is is emotions and i think those are those are really the three components and um obviously if, if you're a strong chessler it doesn't matter the level you're you're going to be able to analyze hands quite well it's just uh it's something that comes with with playing chess you you learn how to analyze situations um in general so that's certainly not an issue but i think in general when when you're a really strong chessler um you you, you 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 begin to believe in yourself that you're you're never going to lose you, or if you make good good decisions at the chessboard you're never going to lose and i feel that that does not translate to poker because then when you make good decisions and say you lose a hand for say half your stack for example cuz it's you're not always going to be all in say you lose a big hand for half your stack um where you you feel you made the right decisions someone they played some random cards and they hit a you know like a backdoor straight or something um that you're going to lose control of your emotions. You're not going to be able to stay focused in the same way that someone who's a little bit weaker and someone who has actually lost quite a few games uh, will will handle it. I mean, someone who's weaker, who's lost a lot of games, are much going to be much better at handling situations where things don't go the right way. I feel than people at the top because once you're at the top, um, things don't things don't go wrong for the most part. I mean, you might have a really bad tournament in chess here or there, but generally you're going to be somewhere near the middle where you may say you draw a bunch of games, win one or lose one, or you have a really good tournament. But you're generally not going to have really really bad tournaments for the most part. And I think because of that, um, anyone who's probably like around above like 2400 they've, they've had too much success with chess that losing it doesn't feel natural and then when you do lose some of these big hands you're you emotionally it, it becomes too much and so you make bad decisions going forward huh yeah i i think uh i think you might be onto something i mean you know some of the best chess players some of the best poker players in the world like dan smith and fader holtz were like you know fide 2300 and then you uh-huh. have the old school guys like Harrington and Schifoni, but yeah, the the super yeah, but those guys also were like twenty two hundred, right? Yeah, exactly. A little bit better, but yeah, yeah, that that's interesting. I think I think you might be right, although you know maybe if you put time into it. But personally, I say stick with chess, and if not that, stick with markets. 
<laughs> but all right, Hikaru, I again, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. Um, and good luck with all the tournaments. We'll be watching uh, eagerly. Thanks. It's great being, being on this podcast. Thanks for listening to Perpetual Chess. To hear more episodes, give feedback, or suggest guests, go to perpetualchesspod.com. If you like the show, please help me out by telling your friends and giving me a high rating on iTunes. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network.